0: For what he's done, and uh, what we believe he's going to do, and changing lives and moving forward. And what we're going to do today is we've been going through the Book of Mark uh, for sermon series, and we're going to actually change that up a little bit and take a little break in light of what God's doing here at our church. And we're going to do a series called All Things New. We're going to do that for about two or three weeks. And I invite you right now. I'm gonna pray for us as we open up the Word. I invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Lamentations. I won't pray that long, so you better find it. Lamentations is one of those books that uh, probably a lot of you weren't doing devotions out of this morning and uh, maybe have never heard a sermon from, it's between Ezekiel and Jeremiah. So while you find it, let me just uh, pray and thank God for what he's done here and then uh, just ask him to do more of the same. Let me pray. Father, thank you for changing lives. Thank you for people that have been saved as a result of the work you've done here, even at this place that a lot of people would never guess, uh, at a movie theater. And I pray you continue to do that. I pray you continue to have marriages strengthened and relationships reconciled and lost people found and people that have been walking with you. Some of them came to Christ when they were five years old and they're 65 years old now and you've got new steps for them to take. You've got new decisions for them to make and you've got things that you want to happen. I pray you do that. I pray as we move to the, the uh, junior high here, this middle school, that you'd shake us up, that we wouldn't just get comfortable with how we do stuff, that you'd do something significant, you'd do a new thing in our midst and you keep doing a bunch of the old stuff. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're doing this series called All Things New, and if you think about it, we have a culture that is fascinated with the new. My kids have started a new school this year. It's their first time going. All three of them are in there, and I remember I was not the new kid at school. I remember going to a school, and you know the same kids, like imagine when you were in sixth grade, however many years that took you to get there, five, six, seven, eight, whatever it took you to get to that level. And then a new kid shows up. You had all your friends, all the guys and girls you knew, and then there's a new guy or there's a new girl. and there's an intrigue with that person just because they're like a mystery. You don't know much about them because they're new. Think about with marketing, how we're fascinated with the new with marketing. Some of you are iPhone people. Some of you are Android people totally understand that. When the new iPhone comes out, the iPhone people will line up. I don't know when it comes out. I'm not a techie, but people will line up outside of the Apple store with tents and chairs like they're Cameron crazies trying to get basketball tickets, right? Like they're lined up to get the new phone. Here's an observation I want you to make when that happens. Notice that most of them are sitting there on an iPhone that works. They're not there because their phone doesn't work, they're there because they want the new product. And ironically, in that situation, one that in probably a week they could walk into the store and just grab off the shelf, but they're waiting outside, even some of them have houses, they're waiting outside to buy this phone. Why are they so fascinated with the new? And then if you're not a techie, you can pick on the techies for doing that kind of thing. But any of us, you go to the store, there's something intriguing about new. If you're going to go, say you're the person that grocery shops for your family, or you do it for yourself, and you show up, and maybe you've always bought Crest toothpaste or always bought Colgate toothpaste, but you go to grab it and you see right next to it, it's the new Crest, new Colgate. All of a sudden, you just assume it's better. There's something intriguing about the new. So what if that's not just you falling for a marketing scam? You were created in God's image. You're an image bearer of God, and what we see about God all throughout the scriptures is he's constantly doing a new thing. And we're gonna talk about that in this series. Now don't get me wrong, he is the ancient of days. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which is one of the most significant things about the application of this series when we come to the end. But when you look at the Bible, you go to the book of Genesis, It's the book of beginnings is what it means. And you, you read the first verse, in the beginning, God. And then what, what happened after that? Everything he does after that point is new. It's never happened before. The new, earth, he creates earth. There was an earth, there's, and then there's water, and there's a sky, and there's birds, and there's vegetables. Some of you are excited about that, some of you are not. Then there's, there's all kinds of stuff. There's a first person, then there's the first couple, and then chapter two, the first marriage, and he sanctifies that marriage between a man and a woman. It's new. He's never done that before. So say, yeah, 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 but then eventually it gets old, right? Well, it's really interesting if you jump to the end of the Bible, and you read in the book of Revelation, which is beyond where we're at right now, so you look at the millennial reign of Christ, the apocalypse. all this stuff's gonna happen at the end. It's not the very last verse of the Bible, but towards the very end, Revelation chapter 21 and verse five, God the Father speaking says this, he who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. A new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And in between that, the new stuff that happens in Genesis chapter one, him making everything new, Revelation chapter 21, what do you see? Well, there's a new covenant. Ezekiel 36, he promises a new heart promises a new spirit he promises he tells us what commands us we're supposed to sing a new song to him so not just the old songs to sing a new song there's new commandments when you get to the new testament to love one another wait a minute love one another's in the old testament he gives new commandments He's now given a new example on how to do these things he makes you new the passage we'll talk about next week second corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 you are a new creation old is gone new has come his mercies are new every day. He's renewing your mind. It's part of his transformation process in you. He is a God of new beginnings, continually reconciling, restoring, and renewing, and inviting you to have a new beginning every day. And so today what we're going to talk about in the first week of this series is God's new mercies. And we've gotten a bunch of new stuff happening here at our church. That's so why we're just going to take a little time out from Mark. Before we come into the new section of Mark and do a new series in Mark, we're going to talk about some of the new things that God's doing all throughout the scriptures and then hopefully you ask yourself the question, what new thing's is God doing in me? And what does he want to do through me and through this church and in this city and in this world? And so if you have your Bibles, and we're going to be in Lamentations chapter three. Like I said, between Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and the Old Testament, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, actually, is the way that it's sandwiched in there. It's a little book, five chapters. It's the only book in the Bible that's all laments, all funeral dirges. In fact, Apart from when Jesus is actually dying on the cross, this is the darkest place in the entire Bible. It's ironic that the words that I'm gonna read to you in verses 21 through 25 in Lamentations chapter three are some of the most hope-giving words that you will see in all of scripture. In order to understand how brilliant, how bright these shine, like a diamond that you put on a black cloth, you have to understand the darkness of what's happening in the rest of this book. So let me nerd out for you for just a second. This is actually written in Hebrew poetry And the way that it's actually written is in acrostic format. And this is the structure of the book. And so in chapters one, two, and four, you'll notice, even in your English Bibles, 22 verses in each one, because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and verse one is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse two, second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The climax of the book, or crescendo of the book, is chapter three, and you'll notice there's 66 verses, because the first three verses are the first letter, the second three verses are the second letter. Why would you put this book in an acrostic format? think about acrostics you've learned as a kid. Some of you learn music. Every good boy does fine. You remember those letters to help you remember something. That's not why it's done here. You don't have to help somebody remember the darkest days of their life. The reason why it's done here, first letter of the alphabet to the last letter of the alphabet is because the author's communicating to us is everything about suffering happens here from A to Z. It's exhaustive. And It's horrible. Let me just tell you what's happening here. Jerusalem's in ruins. The city's been burned. Temple's destroyed. People are looking for help anywhere and everywhere. They can find it. They want deliverance. They're seeking out, idolatry's running rampant. They're seeking out every false god that you can imagine. The circumstances that are happening in this book, if you ever go through suffering, it's a great book to go to. It's worse than anything you've ever experienced. And I don't know all your stories, but I'm pretty sure that no one here has experienced, let me just give you an example. I'll read to you two verses. One's from chapter 2, before what we're gonna read today, one's from chapter four. Moms were eating their kids. In Lamentations chapter two, and verse 20, it says this. The author, probably Jeremiah, says, Should women eat their offspring? The children they've cared for? Should priests and prophets be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? That's how terrible things are here. So they're killing the priests and the prophets. It's not just, it's anybody that will tell the truth. The people are so paranoid that if you tell them the truth, it's not just that they say you're narrow-minded and we don't disagree with you. You just kind of put you off to the side and discard you. No, they're killing the priests and the prophets. And mothers are eating their children. All these awful mothers, how could they be so bad? Read Lamentations chapter 4 and verse 10. With their own hands, don't miss this, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. These weren't savages. These mothers... Or mothers, just like any mom here today. You don't love your kids more than these moms love their kids. Things got so bad, how desperate do you have to be? It got so bad they were cooking their own kids. I told you, is one of the darkest places in the whole Bible. In chapter 3, what happens is that Jeremiah, the author, shares with us personally what he thinks about this, how he feels about this. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 20 are all about that. And he talks about the circumstances. Verse 18, he says he's lost all hope. So I say, my splendor is gone, and all that I've hoped for from the Lord. My hope is gone. And then verse 20, he talks about how he's in depression. And then verse 21, these are the verses that we'll focus on today. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. First, compassions never fail; they are new every morning. That word, "compassions," could be translated "mercies." Some of your Bibles says "mercies," the same word means the same thing. Compassions, and mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Some of you know that hymn. Great is thy faithfulness. It comes from this verse. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, "The Lord is my portion, my reward. What satisfies me? Therefore, I will wait." Could be translated "hope." I will hope for Him. Verse twenty-five. The Lord is good. To those who hope, whose hope is in him. So here you have this passage of scripture. Incredibly dark. There is no hope. And then you get to verse 21. Therefore I'll have hope. And then you get to verse 24. There's hope. Verse 25. Hope. Where does this hope come from? Well, the hope comes from the mercies. Why does hope matter? Here's why hope matters. You know without faith it's impossible to please God. That's Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. Did you know that without God's new mercies, that's where new mercies come? See, new hope comes from new mercies. That's our big idea today. That's the main point. If you're gonna write stuff down, just write that down today. His new hope comes from new mercies. But why do we need hope? Well, I am hopeless. And this guy said that he was hopeless. Let me tell you something. Without hope, you can't have faith. Let me give you a biblical definition of faith. There's a lot of definitions you can find on the internet and books and Christian stuff and all kinds of things. Here's what the Bible says faith is. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the chapter of faith. Now faith is, Webster says, no, this is God's word. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. You have no, fo- no hope, you have no faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hope is important. And new hope comes from God's new mercies. And so what do people mean? Usually you hear people say periodically uh, somebody's going through a difficult time and they're having a bad day, you got fired or you're an argument with somebody, something happened. Well, God's mercies are new every morning. Usually as Christians, what we mean is this, get some rest and tomorrow will be better. That's not what this verse means and let me tell you something else. You don't know if that's true. We said to our kids uh, this past week and some of you know that our family's been through some difficult stuff recently. Uh, everything's gonna be Okay. And one of our daughters said, you don't know that. She's right. You don't know that. So Christian, when you say the next time, God's mercies are new every morning. I know you mean to encourage somebody, but what do you mean by that? Because what if tomorrow they wake up and it's worse? It might be. Circumstances may be worse the next day. What do you, what does it mean? The new mercies mean that you can have new hope. And new mercies matter because without mercies, without these mercies, without this hope, you can't have faith. And you think about the world that we live in, we could use some hope. I don't know what's happening in your individual life, every one of you right now, but you look at the world, and there's a lot of stuff we don't like to think about. People are starving to death in this world. We've got enough food for them. People are dying of diseases that could be cured by clean water. We don't like to think about this. We've got plenty of water here in America. There's more slaves in the world today than there have ever been before. So we think about our history as a country, we don't like that, slaves part of that, and we feel bad about that, but it's worse now than it's ever been. We don't like think of kids dying of AIDS all throughout Africa. There's ISIS and what's happening in the Middle East. There's terrorist stuff happening on our property too. Orlando shooting, think about that and how horrible that was. And I think back to Sandy Hook, and I remember, I remember with well, the Columbine shooting, I don't know if you remember that or not. I was in college, I remember being, somebody shot in a school? Do you know what I think now when it happens? Another one? Like this is the world that we live in. Some of that doesn't touch each one of us. But what about abortion in our country? We're not eating our kids, but we'll fight for the right to kill them. I read this week that that, that abortion is one of the most popular surgeries that any adult female will have in our country. One in three women have had an abortion. Which means I don't want to say that cold heartedly because some of you have had abortions. And God can make that new. He can restore you. And he's sovereign even in those situations. But it's horrible. We could use some hope. Not to mention, if you get real personal, what's going on in, in your life? There's so many people that struggle with depression, struggle with anxiety, could use some hope. There's so many people. That marriages are falling apart. It is more normal, it seems like today, that marriages don't last and that they do last. People could use some Hope we got some people, the financial situation, there is just not enough month left to pay all the bills. Could use some hope. And here this guy says, women are eating their children. He's lost all hope. And look at what he says when he goes back. Go back to verse 15 if you brought a copy of the scripture. He, you know who he is? It's God. It's not that God's allowed this, by the way, in the book of Lamentations. God's caused this suffering. These people are being disciplined for their unfaithfulness. These are God's covenant people. They continue to go after idols. They continue to go after other things. He has brought this suffering. He's used the Babylonians, wicked people, to come in and judge these people. He's disciplining those he loves. Even his discipline is love. But look at how it feels. Verse 15. He has filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. I'm bitter because of God, is what he's saying here. Go to the next verse and see what he says. He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's trampled me with dust. This is poetic speaking. He's humbled me. God has humbled me. It's been awful. He deprived me of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. I say my hope is gone, verse 18, verse 20. I will remember how downcast my soul is. I'll remember all these moments. The New Living Translation says it like this. I will never forget this awful time. It can't be erased from my memory. As I grieve over my loss, all that's been taken from me. And then verse 21. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. How do you go from verse 20 to verse 21? What happened between verse 20 and verse 21? Like, did he get some kind of spiritual pep talk in between those moments? You know, Tony Robbins, break onto the scene. Give some, you know, John Maxwell, give him some talk and the thing. You just gotta pump yourself up. You gotta do this thing and here's the, you know, your obstacles are just opportunities. Your setbacks are your setups and your tragedies are gonna be your triumphs and and pump you all up with all that inspirational stuff. Let me tell you how that'll work. You'll get to the front door and then real life will hit you in the face and it's over. That's not what happened. That's not why he has hope here. Let me tell you the other problem that many of us have reading this verse is that we read our definition of hope into what the Bible means when it says hope, and they're not the same thing. A lot of us, when we think of hope, we're, we're basically talking about a wish. We wish something would happen. That's kind of how we'll define hope. That's not the Bible's definition of hope. It's like this week, I've seen people on Facebook... And different social media, talk about how the Olympics have brought so much hope. Like, now I've got hope again, because I've seen what's happened with the Olympics. And and I was talking with our youth pastor, Dan Ryan, this past week. And I just made a comment to him, just an observation of life. I said, I've never been given an opportunity to sign up for a water polo team. However, in the Olympics, we always have a bunch of men on the water polo team, to which Dan Ryan looked at me and said, Scott, those guys are all 6'5 and stacked. He was telling me, you got no hope, Scott. Like you got no shot at making the water polo team. Now to be clear, all I was saying is in my growing up years, there was never like a water polo rec league. I never had a buddy say to me, hey, we're having a pickup game of water polo. Want to come? I know I have no shot at playing water polo. Those guys are treading water. They're amazing. But you know what? There are a lot of kids around the country right now that are watching Simone Biles do her floor routine, and then little girls do somersaults through their living room, and they hope to one day be in the Olympics. Now, Dan Ryan is a cosmic, fun-sucking killjoy. (laughs) And I don't wanna do that to you like he did to me. Some of you have a shot at making the Olympics, and I'm talking mostly like 40 and under, okay? Some of you little kids, have a shot at making the Olympic. Some of you don't, some, some of you, you know, little boys are putting on sheets and running around their living room. I think that he likes Usain Bolt. And we think Usain Bolt's like American, we're cheering for him. And, and then we got, you got like USA basketball team, Kevin Durant's like, you know, just dropping shots like nothing. Some little kids running through his living room, throwing balls and stuff at baskets. And then you want to look at some of these little kids and go, listen, your dad's five, six. He can't run and he can't jump. You got no shot. But you don't want to be a cosmic, fun sucking, killjoy. So you let them have hope. Hope is what we think, wishful thinking. I hope that one day, and fill in the blank, whatever your biggest dream would be, and it's a wish, that's not Bible hope. Let me tell you what Bible hope is. There's a lot of definitions out there. I really like the one that John Piper has written, so I'm gonna use that, because he's got every word in this definition matters. His hope, biblical hope, not the hope like wishful thinking hope, biblical hope is a confident, keyword expectation, not just, hey, I expect something to be like, and they have no basis for that, but there's a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. Now, why is that different than wishful thinking? Because of what it's based on. It's based on God's character, not on your circumstances. Oftentimes when we talk, I hope these circumstances are going to go this way. I hope this is going to happen. I hope, I wish is what we mean. Biblical hope we can be confident in because we're, doing, we're looking at it through God's character. Another author said this. He kind of flips the script on the way that most of us look at life. His name is Warren Wiersbe. He said this. Unbelief causes us to look at God through our circumstances. And so it's like a lot of times what people do when they think about God is this stuff's happening in my life so God must be like and they filter what they think of God through their circumstances. Look what he says. This creates hopelessness. But faith enables us to look at our circumstances through the reality of God, or I'd say the lens of God. And so it's like you flip the script, instead of going, here's my circumstances, here's God. It's like going, here's God, or here's my circumstances, and I'm viewing it through the lens of God's character. And he says, and this gives us hope. It's a game changer in how you look at this. And you say, "What what did Jeremiah do? What's different? The first 20 verses, go ahead and read it if you brought your Bible, it's him talking all about his circumstances. Verse 21, he flips the script. He's not talking about circumstance anymore. And all of a sudden he went from no hope to therefore I have hope. A confident expectation. What's it based on? Verse 22, because, and it's all about God's character. Let me read it to you again. Verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, his character, God is love. We're not consumed. The very fact I woke up is evidence of this. For here, How do I see it? His mercies, his compassions, they never fail. Every time I've needed mercies, every time I've needed his compassion, it's always been there. Great is your faithfulness, that's his character. No circumstances changed between verse 20 and verse 21, but everything changed for the guy who was writing these things down. Do you know why? He stopped trying to filter God through his circumstances, and he started filtering his circumstances through God's character. It changes everything. Think about how different you would view life if you viewed it in light of what you know to be true about God versus, here's what's happening in my life. Then God must be, and then we write a script of what we think God is like, and we end up worshiping a God that doesn't exist because we've made him up. What he does here is he starts going through who God is, and what you see is that God's in control, he's sovereign. Do you believe God's sovereign? We sing that song, God's sovereign. He's the one, if you wanna get that from Lamentations, he's the one who caused this suffering, didn't allow it. He ordained and orchestrated the suffering that they're experiencing. Well, I can't worship a God like that. Then you can't worship the God of the Bible. And your view on that will probably change when you start to think about his character and who he is. What do we know to be true about God? Is he in control in every circumstance? Because we can say that, I can say that as if we all believe that, but do you believe? Do you believe that God is really in control in every circle? Do you believe that if you have $20 left in your bank account and you've got hundreds, maybe thousands of bills coming, that God's still sitting on his throne? Or does something happen in your life and God goes, oh, didn't see that one coming? Man, car accident, oh, now I got a plan B. Let me tell you something, God never operates on plan B. He's sovereign. The cross wasn't Plan B. He, he had a plan the whole time. And so I can ask you any question about any circumstance in your life, and you got to answer the question: Is God still on His throne? If If some of you, some of you you might have an amazing marriage today. If your spouse walked out tomorrow, would God still be on His throne? If your best friend betrayed you, would God still be on His throne? If you got a call from the doctor and you I know people who've died of cancer, you have cancer. Would God still be on his throne, or would he be screaming? Oh no, I gotta fix this, I gotta figure this out for Chris, I gotta figure this out for Michael. What am I gonna do? Try and put yourself in the place of some of the people in the Bible. You've been in oppression your entire life. You're standing at the Red Sea. You look to your left, desert. You look to your right, desert. In front of you, the guy who's been holding you in oppression since your birth and his army, you have no weapons. Behind you, water. Is God still on his throne? That's not a rhetorical question. Is God still on his throne? He is. What about the worst moment? The greatest crime? The guy you left everything to follow is crying out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You were following him because he was leading you to God. Was God still sitting on his throne when Jesus was dying on the cross? He was. So if we settle the issue that God is sovereign, the next question's huge. Is he good? But he, he caused this suffering. People do die of AIDS. They're starving to death. Dying of diseases. How can, how can we say that he's good? I mean, Jeremiah just said, mothers that love their kids are eating them. And he says, therefore I have hope because, and here's how he knows he's good. He looks at his character and everything about what he says here is about the goodness of God. Look what he says. Because of your great love. That's the word in Hebrew, hesed. If there were a theme word for the Old Testament, it would be hesed. It occurs over 250 times. It's not just translated love, though, or great love, like it is here at the end of or some of you have loyal love, or God's loving kindness, depending on your translation. In fact, that's one of the problems with the word, is we don't have an English word that translates it well. And so if you look throughout the Old Testament, sometimes it's forgiveness, grace, kindness, generosity, loyal love, love, faithfulness. Because we don't have one word that just encompasses what he means when he says here, hesed. His Hesed love, covenant love, committed love. Love that's based on his character, not yours or mine. That's why he can love us no matter what. You want to see Hesed love. you go to the New Testament, there's a story in Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. Many people, even if you've never been to church, have heard the story of the Good Samaritan. And what happens is, in modern day language, is there's a guy who's beaten, left for dead, he's been robbed, and a pastor comes by and decides it's too inconvenient. Doesn't go by the guy. Then a worship pastor comes by and you think, "Well oh, they're more sensitive and so maybe he'll, no, nope. walks around the guy. Then a radical jihadist, Samaritan, which is how the Jews would have heard that, comes by, helps the guy up, puts him on his own donkey, cleans him up, gives him his own ointment, his own clothes, his own money, says to the innkeeper, "I'll pay, you just do what he needs and I got, it, I got it covered. I'll bring more money later. Here's a check now. And then in Luke chapter 10 and verse 37, Jesus is given a parable. He says, that's the guy who showed mercy. Interestingly, the word in verse 37, is translated mercy. When scholars translate the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew, into Greek, that's the word they use for hesed. What we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Hesed is a, a covenant love. It's like you have, like you don't love everybody the same. So I've got some of these guys that are up here in the front. I know you're married, I know your stories. Um, We are, as believers in Jesus Christ, I know you both profess faith in Christ, I know you're married, I know they are members of this church. Um, We're supposed to love every woman here. They're our sisters in Christ. But you don't love them all the same. You have got more of a covenant with the members of our church because we've covenanted with one another that we wanna live a life of righteousness and we're gonna confront each other in sin and we're gonna deal with some of those things. Different than you would just people that have attended our church, just showed up at our church. And then you've got people that are in your small group and so you know them better and you're more covenanted with them and then we're married. And so you got your wife and you're, you're covenanted with your wife different than, than you're covenanted with my wife. All right, I'm for real. <laughs> In fact, if you think that I'm making this stuff up, you can read in the Bible in Ephesians chapter five, husbands are given specific instructions on how to love their wives like Christ loved the church. We should love everybody like Christ. Yeah, I get that, but then how do you do that? And you wash over her with the word. You should lead her in the home and you protect for her. And you provide for her. You're gonna even account for her spiritual well-being, husbands, specific instructions to you. And then what is it supposed to look like? My favorite illustration of this kind of love in the Bible is Hosea. You know the prophet Hosea, what God says to his man, he says, you're going to marry a prostitute. Your love for her is not going to be about her, by the way. You're going to marry her, she's going to cheat on you. You're going to have to go get her out of a brothel. You're going to have to buy her back, Hosea, because I want you to know what it's like for me to love my people. That's how God loves you. And so let me tell you something about God's love for you. It's based on his character, not yours. That's really good news for some of, some of us are like, well, I want you to pump up my ego. I'm pretty special. God should love me. Sorry. ego blast today. It's actually about his character, which means this. No matter what you do, you can't make him not love you. He loves you no matter what. His love is based on his faithfulness, not yours. And what does the New Testament tell us? Even when we've been unfaithful, he's faithful. What do we see here? Great is your faithfulness. I've had a couple friends tell me recently, I don't think it's a coincidence, they're both, one's adopted and one's in the process of doing foster care, and they both told me the same story that they've experienced in their training about kids that they've considered adopting or kids that were gonna be adopted. They, tell, they, they warn the folks to say, hey, these kids all, no matter what the scenario is, it's all bad. So they all have wounds, they all have pain, they all have hurt. Some of them will try to get you to reject them. And so the one guy, my friend, he's in Texas, he was telling me the story that they got told in their training about these two boys that were brothers, and they actually intentionally tried to get kicked out of foster homes to prove that they were unlovable, that's how they felt. say, like, how fast can we do this? They'd be jerks, they'd say mean things, they'd do all this stuff, get in trouble, and they had journals they'd keep on how fast they get kicked out. They were at this one guy's house, and he kept pursuing them. And he kept, even when they'd do dumb stuff, even when they'd say mean things to him, and finally one day one of the brothers looked at the other one and said, I think this guy's for real. Let's give him a chance. That's how God loves you. And you keep going and you keep doing. Now there is discipline, but even that is for your good to call you back. We won't get to the end of this chapter. That's the point. Even the discipline is so you'd return. You could have a new beginning that you could start over. His mercies are new. In fact, how do we know that he's got hesed love? That's what he tells us in this passage. For his mercies are new. His compassions are new. They never fail. They're new every morning. That's the evidence of his love. You've got the mercy you need every moment. Just like the Israelites received manna in the desert every morning, God is faithful. There are mercies. God will give you more than you can handle. That's why when you start looking at your circumstances, and you start like Jeremiah, God's man is doing here. I've got no hope, it's all been taken, it's all gone. Utter despair, but then I started thinking about your character, and I realized even that's good. And I've got hope. It's like the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, I despaired of life itself. Paul, who writes the majority of the New Testament, ready to die. I despair of life itself, that's not the blues. That's not, I had a, it was rainy out on Monday. No, I want, I want my life to be over. Then I look at your character. Now I've got hope. Because you give me more than I can handle, but you never give me more than you can handle. So I can have a confident expectation that whatever you're doing is good because you're good. So ultimately this will be for my good even. And you're going to receive gl- glory. And sometimes the bad stuff that happens in your life its not punishment because you were bad. Let me just say that. You see Job. Read Job. What Job didn't realize is there was, it wasn't even about him. There's a cosmic battle happening and spiritual warfare is taking place. But do you notice in Job that Satan has to ask God for permission for anything he does to Job? God is constantly in control, always on his throne and always good. The same yesterday, today, and forever. The Ancient of Days, you don't have to worry that in your circumstances, he changed, but he'll do a new thing in you. And so what does he say? Great is your faithfulness. How do you know the mercies will be new tomorrow, Jeremiah? How do you, you don't live in tomorrow. You can't see the future. He's like us. He's a man like us. He is limited. He is finite. He doesn't know the future. How does he know the mercies will be there? It's because of that statement. Great is your faithfulness. It's always been, You've every time in the past, you've done this. So I'm going to trust faith. I don't know but I'm gonna trust that you're gonna do it again. And you're gonna do it again because you did it before. How do we know that? What mercies does he mention here in this passage? You go to it and you look at it and you can spend your life studying this passage and you won't find it, he doesn't say. So maybe Jeremiah reflects back and just thinks about the Bible. Well, you were faithful at that Red Sea situation. You were faithful to give manna in the desert. You were faithful when you had the sun stand still. You were faithful when, and he sees it throughout history, or maybe, and when I think probably happened was it was more personal than that not about how have you been faithful in my community of believers how have i even seen you be faithful in mothers that i've seen eat those children how have you been faithful with my friend how have you been faithful in my own life so how do you know god's mercies are going to be new tomorrow you know god's mercy going to be new tomorrow because he gave you what you needed for today and he did it in the past some of you you stood up that god's changed your life of this church he's not done with you Some of you trusted Christ when you were five, six years old and you're 70. He's not done with you. So what's he going to do? I don't know exactly what it's going to be, but I trust that it's going to be good because he's been faithful through this whole process to bring you to this point. He's got a plan for you. What does he say here? He says, therefore I have hope because the Lord's great love. We're not consumed. You woke up today. He's not done with you. We're not consumed. His mercies are new every day. So he thinks about the old mercies is how he knows that there's going to be new mercies And so you think about the old mercies. I told you we were reflecting this week as a church and the staff and just talking about what God's done. I believe God's going to do some great things when we go to this middle school. I don't know. I don't have a promise. You know, August 28th, you know, so-and-so is going to trust Christ as their Savior. I don't don't know that, but I trust that he's going to do stuff like that because of what he's done in the past. And so I just started thinking about our church and I was thinking about different people. And I remember one guy, Gino, I don't know if you know Gino, he serves on our tech team or not. I remember the day that I met Gino. Gino came walking up to me at South Point Mall, the day after Christmas, it was Christmas Day or the day after that or whatever, we had a Christmas Eve service, and we were at South Point Mall, I remember I was with my wife, I was probably getting Chick-fil-A because I'm a Christian, I don't know. It's a joke, I don't even really like Chick-fil-A. No, Don't throw anything. My wife likes it, so she's better anyway. I'm in line at the food court, Gino comes walking up to me, I remember he's got a stocking cap on, he says, hey, you're that guy from the church. I was like, well, I'm a guy from a church. <laughs> he said, I was at your Christmas Eve service the other night. I was like, oh, hey, it's great, you should come to the theater sometime, we should invite you to come regularly. Tell told me about his family, moved here from New York, all stuff. We start talking, get to know each other. I go into the office. The next day that we have the office open, I remember Stephanie Michael worked in our office at that time. She comes up to me with this decision cards of different people who had trusted Christ at our, our Christmas Eve service. And the top card is Gino. And I'm like, I don't know a lot of Ginos. I'm pretty confident. This is the guy from the food court. And I call him up. It was Gino from the food court. And then Gino, he got baptized. I can't remember if he's one of the ones that we saw in the video or not, but he got baptized here at this church. He's taking steps of faith, he serves on our tech team now, he's leading his family, he's leading his kids, trying to lead them to Jesus. And so God did that in Gino's life. I think there'll be another Gino. And we were, even we were talking about it as a staff. I remember uh, Michelle McCann, she's on uh, our, our staff team now. But she trusted Christ here at this theater. And she said, "I don't know a church outside of this theater. Like, I don't even—that's not my Christian experience." And I remember the day that Michelle trusted Christ. I remember we did an invitation where we had people come forward, which was—we don't do that very often. The room doesn't really lend itself to that. But that day, we said, hey, "If you want to trust Christ as your Savior, come down here." And I remember she brought a friend with her, holding her friend's hand, and her friend had lost her voice that day. So when she walked up to me, I said, "What are you—what are you coming forward for?" I didn't have any idea what she was talking about. And then I handed her off to my wife. <laughs> She's got it; she'll cover it. And my wife led her to Christ. And I remember the day that Michelle, this is a years later now, after her trust in Christ, I remember when she first shared some of her story, not all of it, but some stuff that most people don't usually talk about in church, with our church, and what freedom that was for her. A new freedom, that's, by the way, connecting someone to Jesus for life change isn't just when they came forward and trusted Christ. It's that moment when she shares her story too and she realizes that real freedom's found in Christ. It doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks. You've already, you're loved by him. And so she experienced that. And you know what happened several other people in our church? At least they couldn't talk about it in front, but they could at least talk about that thing of her story with her. New freedom for them. That's life change. I remember there's a guy that's a new friend. He was in the first service and he started coming to our church a little bit over a year ago. His name's is Manny. Manny is, uh, comes from Carthage, not Carthage, North Carolina, Carthage, Africa. Uh, Muslim background. That's his ethnicity and kind of the social background that he comes from. He first got invited to our church nine years ago by a young lady named Teresa Haber who was wrapping presents for Southbridge over at Barnes and Noble. He was at Christmas time buying a present. She says, oh, I'll wrap it up. Wraps it in Christmas paper instead of the Jewish paper is what she told me was the story. And she said, you should come to our church sometime. And he was a Muslim guy, he wasn't looking for a church. And he said, what church do you go to? Over at the movie theater. My husband plays on the worship team. And she was like, I work with your husband. It made this connection. How crazy is that guy from Carthage, Africa? Anyway, stands here. He didn't come to our church, he's not looking for a church, but he starts dating a girl, he starts working at Sycamore Creek Elementary School, who knows one of the teachers, is a member of our church. She gets invited to our church and they start talking. It's like, well, why don't we go to that church? So nine years you never know you invite somebody to church what God's gonna do. Nine years later, he comes to church. We start talking afterwards. I don't believe that stuff he starts telling me. You stuff you're talking about, I don't believe that. I said, why don't you start reading the Bible? Why don't you read John? The next week he comes to church. All right, I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, like you said. <laughs> Like you read more than the rest of us anyway <laughs> and then he starts telling i don't like some of the stuff you said and we got about a year of relationship a few months ago he sits in my office places his faith in jesus christ as his savior isn't that awesome yeah give the lord a hand now jimani's starting he's new in his faith journey he's taking baby steps if you remember what it was like to be there those of you who trusted christ a little bit later in life But he's excited about what Jesus is doing. He came up to me after the first service, talking about it. He's growing. Is there going to be another manny? I don't have a promise of that, but you know what I look to? I look, what you've done in the past, I've got hope, but not a wish. I've got a confident expectation. It might be painful how we get to the next manny, but you're good. It's going to be good. So you think about the land. What happened with the land? Let me tell you my narrative. Now that Vern's not up here, I can tell you. No, I'm just kidding. Let me, tell you, let me tell you what it was like for me. I remember I got a call from the civil guy, and he, I don't talk to the civil. You know, a lot of times I give you these announcements, but like John Cullen's the one who gets a call from the civil guy. And so the civil guy left me a voicemail. I was like, why are you calling? So I called him back. He tells me this you know, eminent domain, they're gonna make you sell your property stuff. I get on the phone, I go, are you kidding? Like I said it out loud, no one's in my office. I said, are you kidding? And then I hung up the phone, and I could sit in my desk, and I just leaned back and I went, oh. like big sigh. Our walls are like paper-thin in our offices, so Pastor Brad, our children's pastor, comes over and goes, you don't usually make that noise. <laughs> I said, that's right, and we start, he pastored me through that moment. We start talking about some of those things, and by the end of the day, I was actually laughing. I think about what just happened here at the theater. Like, how narrow-minded would I have to be not to see this? We, the day that we found out that we weren't gonna have enough seats at the theater anymore, I was, what are we going to do? It's a mess. How are we going to fix this? Because we've looked at all the options and there's not another better option in the theater. We're, this is going to be terrible. And then God was doing something better with the school that was being built that we'd never looked at before. And I don't even think we knew about it at that day. So if God's going to do that with this situation, why wouldn't I trust him with the other? Now, Vern doesn't like me saying this because the sale hasn't actually gone through on our property, but I can imagine a day where we'll drive on an a off-ramp over Aviation Parkway and go over that property and be like, man, I'm sure glad we're on that piece of junk property. <laughs> because there was a church sitting in the middle of Briar Creek that none of us saw. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know what's going to I don't have a promise of what's going to happen. But when I look at the circumstances through God's character, what has he done in the past? That I think we can trust him. And you look at what's happening here in this passage. Let me point something out to you about Lamentations. Chapter 2 comes before chapter 3. Chapter 3 comes after chapter 4. Or before chapter 4. You don't have to get a seminary degree to figure that one out. Moms were eating their kids in chapter 2. Moms were eating their kids still in chapter 4. He's got hope in chapter 3. His circumstances didn't change. But he says this in verse twenty-four. I say to myself, "This is now." He's he's let me let me share my heart with you, Jeremiah. Saying, "The Lord is my portion. It doesn't matter what happens. I get Him. You get God. Is not that not good news? You don't deserve Him. He's so good, and He wants you. He's continually, every day, inviting you to a new beginning, restoration, reconciliation, all things being made new." renewal of mind, new creation, old is gone, new has come, new mercies. He's the reward. He's the one that satisfies. And you'll go after other stuff. Even after hearing this message, you'll go after other stuff, but he is your portion. So here's my hope for you. I hope that you leave today with incredible hope, not because I'm, it's going to be better when you walk out those front doors. It might get worse, but you have hesed, God's love for you. His mercies are new every day and he will be faithful. I hope that you'll look at the circumstances through the character of God and have incredible hope of what God has, a confident expectation of a future good. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for everyone that's here today. It is no mistake that each person that came to this church today came today, and God, I don't know what circumstances everyone's going through. You do. Please speak into them. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You do, and we trust you. And God, I pray for any that don't know you as Savior, that right now in this moment, they would confess their sins to you and turn to you and trust you because you are good, you are loving, you are forgiving, you are gracious, and you love us too much to leave us. As we see with these people, they're being disciplined in this passage. And we don't like pain, but oftentimes it's a prerequisite to our spiritual growth. I pray for my friends that are going through pain right now, God, that they would cast their cares on you because you care for them and they would be overwhelmed with your care, with your hesed love today. Thank you for being so faithful when we're unfaithful. Thank you for taking us back. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.